What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, we're diving back into the school shooting discussion with Brett and Thomas from PSYOP Cinema. What's up, fellas? Not too much, Emmett. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks, Emmett. Yeah, very glad to have you guys on. Your podcast is a new find for me. You guys did a great interview with Jeff Schollenberger, and then I immediately went back and started listening to your episodes. Like, I must have listened to like 10 or 15 in a row, just like going through sequentially really interesting stuff. A lot about, you know, what I like about your show is that it really speaks to some of the darkness I felt while living in LA and working for people who were very powerful in LA for a little for a short period of time in my life and realizing that a lot of what people think are conspiracy theories are really just the assumptions and confluences of elite interest and that that reflects itself in these cultural products that are then I mean there's nothing like living in LA where it is like wallpapered with the industry you know, like that's, it's the death star for Hollywood. So I highly recommend people checking out their show. The stuff on the Joker is great. I like that you guys also step into like a spiritual aspect of like basically cultural demoralization and stuff like that. And so I wanted to talk about a film that I actually hadn't watched yet when I recommended it, but I had wanted to do on the show for a while, which was a small Canadian indie about two film obsessed kids who one of whom commits a school shooting. So before we get into that, I wanted to sort of like ask you guys, how did you get into doing what you're doing? Like, it seems like you both took like various routes to get there. Like how did PSYOP Cinema come about? Well, it came about just because of the combination of interests that that Brett and I had in what could broadly be called conspiracy theory and just, you know, us both being recovering pop culture obsessives. Yeah, in some in somewhat different ways, but just thinking about just the the intersection of our interests in in occult in in espionage history and ideologies like transhumanism and the the history of Hollywood and just the medium of film and the power that that medium has, and it was something that Brett and I just talked about all the time in terms of our different kind of research interests and all these kind of things. And we really admire the work of people like Jay Dyer and Jason Horsley, who have really, really great analyses of the pathologies of, of Hollywood and its intersection with power and esoteric ideology. And so Psyop Cinema just came about because we thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if we just started doing close readings of uh, important directors' filmographies, if we just started seeing like, what is actually in these movies. Of course, this being cross-referenced with our, our broader research into things like transhumanism, occultism, espionage, but really just seeing what like what is Christopher Nolan saying from movie to movie? Like, what does it say about him? Mm-hmm. What does it say about what he's communicating to the audience? Same thing with someone like Zack Snyder, David Fincher, and the other directors that we'll cover that we'll cover in the future. So that was that, that was kind of the premise for Psy of Cinema. Yeah, I mean, for my part, I would say I, you know, kind of traumatized myself with with film and, and pop culture over the years. I mean, you know, being at a pretty young age, but really in my early teenage years, I became just 
pretty dedicated, you know, film buff. I mean, probably like these kids in the dirties. I mean, I would churn out watching four to five movies mm. a day sometimes. <laughs> and and I became just really obsessed with with the medium and sort of a votary of of the medium. And then I eventually traumatized myself with it. Like Jason, kind of like Jason Horsley, our friend, recording some of his books, this this process. And yeah, as Thomas mentioned, the interest in conspiracy theory or deep politics and um kind of recovering from also an occult psychedelic experiences and fascinations. And so I started to develop this like new hermeneutic to look at, at cinema, you know, and, you know, I, the kind of hermeneutic of just at an aesthetic level, I mean, I developed as a, as a film buff and came to have an appreciation for what kind of, I thought great cinema, which is, which is kind of a reflection of that kind of, you know, Pauline Kale, Paul Schrader's or New Hollywood ethic of the transgressive sort of ubermensch filmmaker, the auteur, the the artist is someone who rules don't apply to who is sort of at the phenomenon of, of, of life itself, you know, and then I, as I got into like union depth psychology and psychedelics and things, I started to look at films like Collective Dreams and I started to see all kinds of patterns of symbols in them. And I sort of took them as in a, in a union fashion as kind of like constellations of the public psyche. And you could get all kinds of information out of it that way, right? And, and get all kinds of insights into yourself. And then in the next phase was kind of seeing that this kind of knowledge, this kind of psychological, archetypal, cultural knowledge, well, you can actually use it to author a culture, you know? And so then I, that was kind of the next layer of the hermeneutic, the deep poly, and they're all sort of layered together. And so it says, this is the kind of hermeneutic we've used to look at films and take a fresh look at a lot of films I've seen a million times, some films I've never seen, you know, before, and then to, and then to branch the research you know, sort of mm -hmm. out where that where that leads you. And yeah, so we found there's this whole underworld of, of organized crime and cultural engineering, right? So that's kind of the term we use cultural engineering. And specifically, I mean, the overlaps between MK Ultra and Hollywood cultural engineering, I won't elaborate too far here, but that's really become, you know, kind of the the fascination of the show. Yeah, I thought I think that part's been very interesting. I highly recommend people check out your your Nolan and Snyder series. I as somebody who I was really struggling to articulate like what I thought was going on in like the Snyder cut of Batman versus Superman. And I think you guys really helped me sort of like put help me put words to a movie that was so shitty but that i couldn't stop thinking about and that i finally got to stop thinking about after i heard you guys talk about it um oh, so good. thank you so for glad. the relief. Like, we want yeah. not have to think about batman versus superman or at least i know brett's more fond of the movie than i am i personally want to save people from having to think about that movie as much as is possible it's one that i hate but i but i, I understand the importance of as we discussed in the episode yeah, I mean, I think I'm a little bit more on the Brett end of that, but I was just like, I don't want my life to have this much Snyder thought going on, generally, if I'm going to be a healthy person. So you've both talked about, you both used this phrase that has now sort of become a phrase of the zeitgeist, which is trauma or traumatized. And I kind of want to talk about that a little bit as a bridge into talking about the dirties, a 2013 sort of found footagey 
film, though I don't really think that that's the best way to describe it, that was directed by Matt Johnson. So when you guys say you're traumatized by cinema, I think that there's like this almost like knee jerk, like almost Ben Shapiro-y response that's like, you fucking baby. Like, what are you talking about? But I don't think you guys mean it in this like, quote unquote, Tumblrina, like literally shitting and crying type way. I think you guys mean something way more sophisticated. So I was wondering if you could flesh that out for our listeners. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so yeah, I, I would agree at some level with the the Ben Shapiro's. I mean, Ben Shapiro's a total hack, but I mean, sure, yeah. that idea that, yeah, I mean, it's low intensity. So I'm not saying it's like the trauma of the horrible things we need not mention here. I'm, I'm really not, I'm not saying that. But on the other hand, I, I am because what trauma is, I mean, the, I think the Freudian, I'm not a Freudian, but the Freudian definition of trauma is pretty sufficient. I mean, when your psyche mm -hmm. cannot process it, it becomes trauma. And part of what this exercise in cinephilia, you know, is, you know, in the post new Hollywood era is like trying to subject yourself to more and more transgressive over the, uh, in all kinds of ways, right? Over the top kind of kind of stuff. I mean, I can. I mean, just watching stuff. I mean, you got into the sort of torture porn in the early two thousands. I just it had no. Yeah, the, the Lionsgate moment. The I, I call it new metal blue because every one of those movies was like totally blue in color scale, and they all use new metal as part of their soundtrack. Yeah, that was a lighting scheme. It was just so many things were obnoxious about early two thousand cinema. So, but some of the seventies stuff, you know, I mean, there's. Uh, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one thing. Then you get into Cannibal Holocaust, which, by the way, Cannibal Holocaust is on the shelf of the of Matt Johnson, the yes. character in the movie. And we'll talk about some of the other movies that are on there. But yeah, so when you subject yourself to to this, I mean, you so you, you see the fruits of trauma in yourself too. You see the kind of derangement of your your affects and your tastes and spiritually. I mean, I think, and I would tell you as a, as an Orthodox Christian, I mean, you are effacing the image of God within yourself when you when you try to make yourself like this or value it so it really does damage i think it's it's a real thing and I mean, people can laugh at it but i mean they do so at their own peril mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that that's something that i've become sort of more sensitive to as i've gotten older especially because i was like a heavy metal horror movie kid so like so much of my adolescence was spent with my death metal friends ordering obscure like argentine gore movies and stuff like that you know off of back catalogs and watching them in a friend's basement or whatever and just really pushing the gross out factor as far as you possibly could to the point where it would make you like a little bit sick you know and i think that there's this sort of like cavalierness right i always think about i've, I've quoted this on the show there's this poet nick flynn who has this great line at the end of one of his poems where he says we think we can think whatever we want and it won't matter we think we can think, cut out her tongue, and then ask her to sing. And I think that's like sort of so much of what goes on with this. And I think generally, I think part of that is like what's going on with these two characters in the dirties, especially the Matt character. I don't know if you guys thought that, that it was clear that he was like oversaturated with film in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to briefly comment on what you were just saying and what Brett was just saying, I think that there's something very revelatory in the doublespeak a lot of people use to to defend art and culture from these charges that it's capable of uh, of creating genuine psychic damage. Because like on one hand, it's like, 
oh, this is the most important stuff ever. It's worthy of investing all your time into the artists, the creative, just, you know, find meaning through that. It can free you, it can socially liberate you, it can create self-actualization. But on the other hand, it's just entertainment. Why are you taking it so seriously? Like, right, that's yeah. weird, you know? Uh, people will just, uh, the same person can, like, cycle through both of those completely contradictory arguments just at a moment's notice just to just to defend it against the idea that it could be causing any kind of damage. But I think that people are correctly recognizing the power of, of these mediums and of modern you know, contemporary perspectives on, on pop culture. You have to shape people's worlds and for people to invest time into and to and, and their personality into then surely it follows that these things are capable of, of, of causing that kind of damage if they're capable of literally shaping people's meaning and guiding them toward the correct political cause the correct spiritual disposition the right correct psychological disposition all these things that, that's something i really appreciate about the about the dirty which is maybe the first movie in a while that we've watched that i could say okay probably not an intentional psyop which is which is kind of rare mm-hmm. for our analysis but even if it might not go all the way that that brett and i would in terms of thinking about how intentional that this this, this this disorientation process can be from pop culture onto pop culture obsessives the fact that it does i think very realistically portray the way that someone like the matt character can just get lost in this fixation. And even there's even a scene in the film that kind of demonstrates this dynamic that, you know, that I'm just talking about where, where, where he's being accused by his friend Owen of, of thinking everything's a movie. You know, you're always mm-hmm. acting, you're always performing. And then, you know, he's like, you know, at first it's defensive. It's like, oh, we are, in a, it is a movie. We're definitely in a movie too. And then like, no, I'm not acting. I'm never acting. There's mm-hmm. these two extremes of this idea of either just totally lost in the role, give yourself to the endless layers of, meta-analysis and irony and detachment or just pure authenticity i'm never and like both those things and we discussed this in our analysis of chapter 27 the film where jared leto plays mark david chapman um, which mm-hmm. we find a lot of importance to to leto and to chapman and the the lennon murder and all of that relates to our joker analysis but anyway there i was mentioning that there's this kind of uh, this kind of dual prompt attack on normal social functioning where on one on one hand it's like pathological desire for authenticity at the cost of all normal you know of like good social norms and on the other hand just pure layers of you know just detachment and irony and i think it's not a coincidence that these things both create both create pathologies that are that are distinct but can function in similar ways. So yeah, I definitely think that I definitely think that the dirties can at least point towards the way that yeah the, the way that pop culture can function in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck. So just to give an overview of the plot, which is pretty simple, it's two obviously disaffected teenage boys, both obsessed with cinema, both make a student film that they're forced to edit and worsens their social life by virtue of it being edited in a way. And then one of them sort of gets on a healthier track of life and the other sort of commits to a plan to kill his bullies at school. And there's a little bit more to all of that, which we'll get into. But I thought what was striking to sort of pick up where you left off, Thomas, is like, I thought the movie was very smart in how it opens in that like if you're the type of person that has paid attention to school shootings at all the entire opening sequence is basically like recreating iconic images from the pre-shooting video archives of eric harris and dylan Klebold. 
I don't know if you guys thought that same thing, but when it's like them were walking down the hall and one of them's wearing a big coat, I mean, those two boys basically do the same type of film where they're two like badasses who, you know, go on some sort of like hitman journey or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's several, yeah, there's several loops going on. And there's some other references to those films that were made by Klebold and Harris when at the shooting range, <clears throat> Matt is doing some yes. sort of hand gesture that's taken from those videos. And I, I've seen all those, I've read all of those uh, Columbine journals and stuff. So yeah, most definitely there there was that feedback going on, the the references to to Columbine. And then the other one, as you said, this is a movie you know, about some about kids that basically are the products of movies. You know, so, mm-hmm. and I think the conceit of the film is, you know, because the, well, I mean, it becomes a film that's essentially made out of other movies, because as you were saying, he doesn't, Matt, as, as reaches say, like, derealization, there, there's no telling where fiction ends and reality begins, so he's sort of been replaced with culture. He's been programmed, you know, by by culture. So it is, you know, it's a film that kind of it's about how movies, you know, shape the consciousness of, of the movie makers. And how that also feeds back into another loop with Columbine is this sort of this debate that's been lost now, as you mentioned, about the effect that media has mm-hmm. in culture. And there's a very, I mean, at that time, of course, there was a, a really partisan debate, right? You had the the sort of Bible thumpers and and their, their term was toxic culture. You know, they said the toxic mm-hmm. culture toxic culture now everybody talks about the toxic culture right? once again you know these these evangelical wackos were, were right but on the other side there was this there was this defense of it all as innocuous and you know 20 25 years down the road nobody really thinks it's innocuous but now the the defense of culture to the extent it exists at all it's, it's very incoherent as mm. you as you point out but it's almost like the the debate isn't isn't there at all so this movie is situated kind of you know, it's situated in between these two cultural moments, you know, in, yeah. in a way. No, I think that's right. I think this it's between in a lot of ways, right? Because it's early iPhone era too, which I think is important because one of the things that you start to realize is at first for a while, you think that the people who are filming them are fellow students helping them make their film. And then after they get through the filming portion of their own film, it becomes this sort of fourth wall they interact with. And you're left with a lot of questions about the nature of artifice in the film and things like that. And to me, that sort of preempted the everything being video recorded all the time via iPhones era. And the ubiquity of culture through the inundation of moving images that has been created through digital life. And this movie is, I think, right in between those two moments. It's sort of the end of the er early to mid millennial and Gen X era to the late millennial Gen Z era of culture. And the reason I think why there's no coherent defense of culture is because culture is basically water at this point. It's everything. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I think it's key to the critique that he's making. So now, at least as the narrative goes, sort of we're all, you know, deliberately, you know, sort of surveilling ourselves and filming ourselves and documenting ourselves. But in this way, they have to have a cameraman 
right? The unspoken mm-hmm. uh, collaborator with Matt specifically, his faithful collaborator. If you watch close, like he gives him all the close-ups he needs and and everything, even as he's going insane. It's it's the cameraman, and that reminded me of a movie that makes a very similar kind of statement that was really praised among uh, the kind of artsy fartsy crowd. Was was Man Bites Dog, this Belgian film from 1992? It's where like a documentary who follows around a serial killer. And it isn't enough for them just to like not participate. They have to actually he like gets them to start helping him out and 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 stuff. So I think that's that's part of his his critique here too is is about media. But now, right, that you're right, that critique has gotten watered down because of the nature of technology in some ways. Yeah, and I would uh, I would also say that it's I think that there's something dangerous there, even though I think the film plays it plays it fairly well, fairly responsibly, but just. Uh, getting lost in the feedback loops that you're trying to critique, which is, you know, something that we try to avoid on side of cinema, just because these things are so just that the power of the self-referential nature of culture, especially as it's transitioning to becoming, like you said, Emmett, like water, both in, in how we process it psychologically and spiritually, and just on a technological level of just the, you know, panopticon society and, and, and all of these things. But just like thinking about the, you know, the nature of the unhealthy relationship that the Matt character has with you know with, with with filmers, just the references are purely for their own sake. They're not very coherent. It's just you can tell for these characters, it's meaningful just to just 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 to reference a line from a movie or to combine that with another one. That's they automatically take that to be sophisticated or interesting or witty or any of these things. They're just really lost in you know, in, in in that maze. And with the you know with this film, there's like I said, I think it can helpfully maybe point some ways uh ways out of that maze. But at the same time, just by virtue of the fact that you know it's uh. It's a film about filmmakers making a film. Like there's somewhat of that indulgence, like in in those meta loops themselves, and and uh, just uh, the fact that yeah, it's interesting how the the cameraman angle. Because yeah, I read one interview with Matt Johnson where he was saying about and or 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 just some some write up about the film. I think it might have been where they were saying that in an earlier cut they tried to explain who's filming this, but then it that that actually seemed to break the immersion of the audience. So they decided well. We're just going to never explain who's actually behind the mm-hmm. camera, even though I think that at just one scene, Matt turns to the camera and actually says says the name of the person when he asks him something, says the name of the of the cameraman. But otherwise, it's very surreal. The fact that yeah, like you were saying, I mean, you can't really tell from moment to moment in the movie. All right, like how much of this is supposed to be like actual found footage, or how much of this is just like a very fanciful idea of some kind of ethereal camera, you know, to like following these guys around like up until you know. Uh, up until even the very end when like he's actually you know brought the gun in a shooting you still have the you know the, the filming uh, you know happening and, and, and all of that so yeah just to say that in order to correctly diagnose what's going on with these feedback loops you have to kind of indulge in them a little bit you know just to point out the power that these that these particular properties within pop culture have over us but at the same time <laughs> it's it, you know it it, it it can be dangerous and it risks once again just worshiping it or fixating on it or getting getting sucked in to a larger degree and i think some of these things some of the meta aspects of the dirties get up at least to that edge perhaps without falling over yeah i think it actually did a pretty successful job of avoiding that by not explaining what was going on because that like once i realized they were never going to explain it is when i started to get really uncomfortable because there's one scene where <clears throat> matt is replaying footage of him being horribly bullied and he says 
you know, he keeps rewinding it and looking at it at different speeds and checking the audio. And he turns to the camera and he says, you know, it's funny when you watch something horrible happen to you on film, it's like you're not even there. And that's the moment where I got really uncomfortable because I realized perhaps unintentionally by not explaining what, who the camera person was, that the camera is really Matt's relationship with reality. And I think the full disconnect from reality comes for him the morning he does the shooting and installs more cameras on his own and becomes yet further abstracted from his real life because he's not going to make it out of that environment. So who's he videotaping for is the real question. And I think that the only answer I could come up with is that the cameraman is his perception of his own life. But you, the cameraman is supposed to be the viewer, right? So it's suborning the viewers. But, that right. That's the uncomfortable intimacy, right? I think it's both at the same time, that that's how it brings you into his world. is like you're viewing his life from his invented, I'm in a movie perspective. And that's why there, there really is no you know, dignified way out of these sort of feedback loops when you enter into them, even if you're not trying to psyop the audience mm -hmm. because you're suborning the audience, right? And then you as the filmmaker are also, you know, brought into this guilt, whether you like it or not. And that first scene where they, these kids, by the way, they say that's total coincidence, those kids, where if you can believe that, that just these kids were in the park and they had to go, Kevin Smith or ever had to go find them and get them to sign the the waivers. But- Oh, no way. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> but that, I don't know if it's true, but that's like, an, I mean, that's a sort of initiation going on. Remember the afterwards, they said, should we tell these kids, you know, it doesn't get any better. So they're acting like they're a big time, mm -hmm. you know, Hollywood or something something of course which is a microcosm of their relationship as they make that film to to hollywood so they know they're sort of i mean i don't think that this is uh, yeah i don't think it's it's this is being made with you know like in cooperation with psyops but they know the game in hollywood and you have to sort of audition now we, and if you listen to our episode on memento where we talk about christopher nolan's memento i mean that's mm -hmm. kind of my theory about that movie that independent movie is that he's trying to show the hollywood bosses that you know i get it you know i know how mm -hmm. it all works i understand perception management and all this stuff so give me the give me the tools you know do something big give um, me the batman yeah <laughs> give me the batman and he references Batman in his first two movies, if you look, which is really, is really weird. And I think it's important to the aspects of the, the Matt character in the movie that he's manipulative with his use of media, that he, even mm -hmm. though he's very, very socially inept in a lot of ways, in a different way than his friend, the, the, the Owen character is, but he's very, he, he's concentrating constantly on creating these kind of harebrained schemes of how to accomplish, you know, X, Y, or Z little social goal you know, through, you know, through just some kind of weird stunt that even one of the character in the movie actually points out to him and you know, like, oh, that's, that's silly. That's like something that would happen in a movie. And then there's very levels of success with that. But you know, even with him like trying to you know, get uh, get a shot for the film that they're making by just like having one of their classmates just say a particular line, like while she's in front of the class, he kind of prompts her to say it while he's secretly filming. You're just little things like that. Is that 
you know, later in the film, Matt self-diagnoses as a psychopath. And there's a lot, a lot to say there about that, about just like how he, you know, he's so excited to find out he might be a psychopath and so disappointed when Owen's not giving him attention for that and all these things. But, but then earlier, but then throughout the entire film, he's recognizing that not only is pop culture this ultimate source of meaning for him that maybe it's so intimate to him that he wouldn't even be able to identify it, but it's his sole reference point for meaning in the world. And he's also recognizing it as a means to an end, as a way to accomplish these different goals, as a way to use the camera to manipulate people and to manipulate and to manipulate reality. And I think that there's something very profound there. That's something that Brett and I talk about on the show sometimes is that people that you would expect you know, to have a CIA handler or something like that, just from their level of immersion in toxic culture and, and, and mm-hmm. traumatization, whether on a low intensity or high intensity level, and their interest in psyops and manipulation on a personal level. Like often, it is just that they have been paying attention to to pop culture. They've seen whether you know we were just talking about Memento, you know, a few minutes ago, and there's a you know just a ton of psyop themes. You know, in, in a film like that, that people wouldn't be looking for or a million other movies that that we've analyzed or that the Matt character has posters for. It's like, yeah, this stuff, it's in there. It's part of the general fixation. And so just by paying a little bit too much attention to what's actually going on in this pop culture that we're all chugging, someone like the Matt character can recognize that yeah, he, just as he is kind of willingly dissociating into these adolescent fantasies you know through these movies he's also learning the importance of manipulation Mm -hmm. yeah i think yeah because he does that i think the one of the strongest moments of that is when he they film a scene with their film teacher and then immediately sneak back into the room and like refilm their parts of the dialogue from the same angle so that they can totally alter the scene they got him to agree to be in and that being like To me, I was like, oh, okay. So like, I'm the teacher in this world. Like the power play is being exacted upon me, the viewer. That's what's happening here. Yeah, that's a great point. That's, uh, yeah, there's all the different dynamics of how the movie from scene to scene kind of, I think very subtly, (laughs) just and very successfully, it's a very good movie just shows the viewer the power of what Matt and 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 Owen are up to. Yeah, it's, it's it's quite impressive. And I think the teacher example is 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 important. There are other sequences, but yeah, just by virtue of these these kids being social misfits, one of the messages that they've gotten from pop culture is by being kind of socially out of touch, they can maybe be a master manipulator, which is an archetype that you know Christopher Nolan, who we mentioned a few times in mm-hmm. this conversation, is really fixated on. And they're plenty of other examples in film and television about the fetishization of the of the master manipulators the idea that you know the other this idea for these kind of outsider characters that oh because i'm alienated maybe i'm different maybe i'm not below other humans maybe i'm above them and of course there's very levels of success because there's some very silly and almost buffoonish nature to a lot of matt schemes in the movie but it's something that actually goes a lot to the joker conversations that Brett and I have been having on our show for months now, but the, you know this idea of people who feel totally crushed by society, or maybe or perhaps are made or manipulated to feeling the weight of the weight of society, just kind of breaking down their psyche, just often default to these ideas of you know being able to cause chaos or destruction either through like very just 
you know, apocalyptic ways, like at the end of like at the like at the end of this film, when he decides he's just going to kill people, or more subtle ways of you know feeling that sense of godhood by you know by by just being able to manipulate people. And yeah, Matt's use of use of cameras to do that, use of like film projects to do that, I think is very important. Yes, and I think you know this is what's important about Owen, his friend, as he gains confidence, as he basically interacts with a girl that they seem to have had some sort of feelings for each other going back to early childhood even. I think that's sort of the importance of him learning the guitar in the film because he has to be a complete beginner. He has no mastery over it. And it is really, his arc is that he becomes vulnerable to the world. And that is something Matt refuses or is incapable of doing. And it is the layers of mediation that keep that distance for Matt, which also supply him with his power as a master manipulator yeah those are those are good observations and there's some positive you know messages of the movie as to that master manipulator psychopath theme in the movie i mean there's another feedback loop in the background because i mean, I think part of the reason that matt is seeking attention for being specifically a psychopath is because the culture has taught him that you know psychopaths are are win friends and influence people you know and hannibal lecter and mm -hmm. uh, you know american psycho the rest of it i mean so the other you know the line is about the you know he's reading the definition of a psychopath and so book and it's that he derives pleasure basically from his deceptions and he lies for sport i think clearly it's like saying oh maybe filmmakers are kind of inherently psychopathic and and there's mm -hmm. a, a there's a psychopathic element to, to hollywood and hmm, and wall street and you know mm -hmm. maybe the people running the finance the entertainment industry are all a bunch of are all a bunch of psychopaths but yeah that that joker he specifically mentions the joker right and the the dark mm -hmm. night so the i think the basically like the entire kind of joker cycle that we're mentioning is is serious of course it's inflected in the like as a school shooter right but the weirdo outsider as we and we were on jeff you know he talked about how, like the transformations of this character from you know sort of the lone nut assassin and through the sort of mass shooter and you know the school shooter and, and mass shooter uh and so on but the catcher in the rye, right? Nod there, there too. And I mean, um, if you, I don't know if you've seen Operation Avalanche. So there's, there's a lot of. If you watch that, you see they're definitely kind of keying into some conspiracy stuff in, mm. in the thirties. Because in Operation Avalanche is, is about it's the same, it's the same guys, but they're CIA, they're CIA agents they come up with the plan to fake the moon landing and you know they get on to kubrick said and then i think they're being tracked by someone like james jesus angleton counterintelligence and so, so these guys know what the kind of catcher in the rise stuff manchurian candidate lineage going on here is that matt johnson's follow-up film to this operation avalanche it i believe so yeah it's because it's yeah okay i was trying to remember because I, I i couldn't remember the name of his follow-up but that's fascinating that it has this literal like psyop element to it and that they're so in touch with that like the scene where matt is having a conversation with his mother which to me is like i i thought other than the final scene the most devastating part of the film yeah is he's we're wearing a catcher in the rye shirt asking his mother if he's crazy well and she's you know because she's a mother she just can't bring herself to believe that he is what, what he pretends to be like it's a phase so she says he seems crazy or something and remember when they're in the library and then he's taking all the catcher in the ride book he says i want to seem crazy so it trying to seem crazy all the time maybe maybe makes you crazy but 
interesting too. That's like a direct reference to conspiracy theory where mm-hmm. Mel Gibson, Jerry is take has he's like compulsively drawn to buy up all of the the copies of the catcher and the rye. So mm-hmm. that makes you seem crazy to have a lot of them. And why is he doing that? Because he's referencing, you know, Mark David Chapman. He's got and Matt has Taxi Driver, you know, on his shelf as as part of his his collection. You know, also the all the school shooting movies. I don't know if you know a lot of these. These are a lot of there's them are elephant. Like, there's a made for TV movie about Columbine that's actually pretty horrific. On and his shelf, on his shelf, he's got Bang Bang, You're Dead, Zero Day, Detention, The Siege of Johnson High, Homeroom, hmm. and the only way. Elephant. Right, we can talk about that because that gets a reference, but he doesn't have that on his shelf. Hmm. So I mean, I've actually I actually seen like all of those movies. So he's actually referencing all the movies previously, and some of them like Zero Day is a movie that's just like this movie is sold as like kind of Blair Witch Project style found footage of these of these kids planning a school shooting. The one that detention that sees John Snyder, I'd never seen that, but that's pretty chilling. That's 1997. And you look at it, it's about this kid like takes, you know, like takes over the school. And I mean, it's like, that looks like wow. predictive programming territory. Because 97, you had Kip Kinkle and you had some of them, you, hadn't, you didn't have Columbine yet. No, Columbine was probably, I mean, that was the, that was the loudest. And in terms of its own internal cultural reference through the way in which media permeated the lives of Harris and Klebold is I think really important is that, you know, both in their musical interests and in their film interests. And then the fact that Eric Harris built doom mods called wads, which are, have been scrubbed from the internet by the doom mod community Though you can still find footage of them. It was like within those boys was every single thing that had come up as a concern about culture in the decade leading up to what they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm sort of close to this in a lot of ways. I have a, a friend who is going to film school uh, at the time. He's, his name is Danny Ledoing and he made this game, which I think it was at slam dance or something called, Oh God, Columbine massacre. Or, I mean, just something really super Columbine, Matt, something really sort of tasteless. I can just tell you though, he meant the thing as a very serious <laughs> um, sure, yeah. exp- expiration of it. You know, you see Matt's reading Dave Cullen's book, Columbine mm-hmm. also. So you have another direct reference to Columbine. Dave Cullen was this writer for Westward um, in Denver, which is, I don't think it's a defunct publication. It was a great publication, sort of indie left-leaning publication, but that was the really on, only honest reporting in Colorado that was being done on a column. I actually corresponded with Dave because I was writing this manuscript when I was like in my early twenties about the nineties and the kind of cultural nihilism, you know, Je- you know, Jeff Schulenberger, we just read, uh, Thomas just sent me an article that he wrote called the faith of mass shooters, where mm-hmm. he's, his argument is, and I'm just reading from Compact, uh, the little blurb here, the mass shooter exposes the spiritual hollowness at the core of history's most powerful empire. I don't quite understand all of Jeff's moves in this kind of very succinct article, but that was like basically the conclusion, you know, that I had where you have these like generations of upper middle class disaffected kids, or at least this was the narrative, right? That they not only do they not want the uh, what was the term halcyon was the term that Jeffy they don't want the halcyon uh, the 90s and all it has to offer like they just want to blow the, the the side up and this is totally I mean if you read the uh, if you read the journals of, of Klebold and and Harris mm-hmm. especially especially Harris I mean all of this stuff is all right there this desire to to create this apocalypse to turn sort of back you know at at the society and and to and to demolish it 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 was. Yeah, so I mean that was the fascination. Why, why, why 
privileged, well-off people like wanted to destroy in society, why they wanted to attack symbols of their culture. There was this FBI, there was a secret FBI that was to the secret committee that was that was put to, the, to, to investigate the true causes of, of school shootings in the wake of mm-hmm. Columbine. Now, this was Slate Magazine that wrote in 2004 on the fifth anniversary of Columbine. It was declassified. You should ask yourself, first of all, why do they have to classify such a thing in the first place? Sure. Right? Yeah. Telling people in public it's senseless. There's no meaning to these crimes. Well, the meaning is like, yeah, there's something really unstable about, about our society. And, and the, the conclusion that these you know, uh, these psychiatrists and uh, and stuff came to why the, why the school they're attacking. It has nothing to do with bullies in the end, they said. I mean, all, some of these conclusions are disputable, but it's about really attacking symbols of the culture, turning against the culture and trying to sort of destroy it, um, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of like to set off some sort of chain reaction. They thought that that's the whole copycat thing to right? this obsession with copycats and people trying to create copycats because people who, who commit many of these crimes, I mean, they claim they're trying to inspire others, right? Think about Seven, you know, the Kevin Spacey mm-hmm. character, I'm going to be imitated and followed. And now how much of this stuff is organic and how much of it's synthetic? How much it was it was it piped in? I, I think to answer that question, I mean, we need to reevaluate a lot of the toxic culture from the, from what was leading up to, to Columbine. Because that, I mean, that's a lot of, that's the preoccupation of these characters in the film. I mean, some of the, early, I mean, they have a lot of early 2000s, mid 2000s sort of stuff. But even that's just stuff like Elephant, which we'll talk about, that's kind of the reaction to this previous wave of of cultural Mm -hmm. nihilism that culminates in the Columbine massacre. Yes, I think, so I had Jeff and Catherine D, aka Default Friend on to talk about both of their essays on sort of the nihilism at the heart of the school shooting phenomenon earlier in the year. I think over the summer. And, uh, you know, that's sort of like when the three of us like developed like the shooter zeitgeist. So you get like the serial killer in the 70s or whatever, 70s and 80s. And then, you know, we have this more like atomized going postal thing that happens. And then now it really seems to be the like mimetic lone gunman that's like totally atomized. Because while watching The Dirties, I couldn't stop thinking about a shooter who's just totally dropped out of the news cycle, but basically seemed like an empty man, which was the Illinois shooter right around July 4th, who seemed to have like, not even the aesthetic of an ideology. You know, it was just like, raw media saturation and total abstraction from everyday life that was driving that. It was like almost the it was like almost the platonic form of that sort of mass shooter. You were talking about Bobby Cremo. I th- yeah, that's him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's somebody that I'm I'm very interested in, and I I, I watched a lot of his material before I, it was a lot of it was scrubbed from the internet. So, you know, his Awake the Rapper persona and all of that, and I, I I agree with you in a way, and I think that it's interesting. I mentioned this in one of the conversations we've had with Jeff about about how it's very silly that the kind of scramble for people to just like slap on and just a very superficial political label to these people, depending on what side of the what side you know yeah. what's, what's normally politics they're on. Oh, Cremo's uh, an SGW, Cremo's a MAGA guy, or whatever. And both the fact that yeah, there's this just kind of scrambling of an incoherency of of symbols that could indicate all these things in his profile is interesting. But then, uh, yeah, honestly, both with, with him and, you know, with the, the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi and all of that, something mm-hmm. that does interest me from one of the research angles of the show is just the deranging nature of some of the 
the spiritual material that these people are into, you know, on the same blog that the, I, I, I'm blanking on his name, but the Paul Pelosi attacker, that they, he had all the conspiracy stuff that people were trying to use to justify him saying, oh, he's a basically a QAnon guy or whatever. I mean, there was a lot of Gnosticism, a lot of stuff about aliens and fairies and all, all, all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. And uh, even more so with, and then people can dispute the veracity of the blog, but I just mean even just the fact that it was being held up to demonstrate one thing while it, while it demonstrably like had all this other material related to the kind of deranging spiritual ideologies that we think uh, that we think play a big role in the general psyop of the superculture but with with cremo you know you had the fact you that on genius the the lyric interpretation site you know he was leaving comments talking about alistair crowley and you know the eon of horus and and and, and this kind of stuff and some a lot of the symbolism you see in pictures of them indicate i think actually probably fairly deep level of knowledge of some 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 pretty in-depth cult ideology so i i think that yeah there's a fact that there's the just kind of the empty man aspect of something like that where yeah these just these these figures are being divested more and more and more of meaning or just like going more towards chaos but then also the fact that they might be indulging in these ideologies of personal divinization through destruction of the self and destruction of others that could actually just genuinely genuinely try to demonstrate try to try to create that kind of of chaos and a scrambling nature of symbols so i i think both those things are going on there i could go on about primo for a while because I, I looked at a lot of his his online content and uh, there's a lot of connections i'll say just to just to i think pretty a pretty insane a call to new age thought there Oh, I'm sure that that's there too. I was actually surprised that there wasn't a, a little bit of that happening in the dirties, but I guess it sort of makes sense that there's already this sort of like pop culture becomes its own sort of occult milieu that's going on there. I think to me, I w- for some reason, you know, whenever I watch any of Cremo's stuff, I, it always struck me that he always seemed so incredibly vulnerable and childlike in some ways. And in hearing you talk about him, it reminded me of this scene in the dirties where after a bully has basically like thrown all of Matt's clothing in the shower and he's waiting for his mom to come and get him, the camera views him outside through a window, like pretending, like actually playing pretend about and having this like power fantasy of like giving violence on somebody or something like that. And in that moment, you see him as like this completely somebody who's totally captured by a certain level of arrested development. Like he's not his full self. And I think part of that is also, I mean, there's a reason why you it's never even hinted that he has a father. Like there's something going on there about the formation of his self and the sort of self, self-soothing self technique and then self-psyop technique of raising yourself with pop culture. And of course, a lot of that as a young man are going to come through what images of masculinity you see and our dominant images of being a man are incredibly self-destructive and violent and borderline psychopathic at all times. Yeah, I think that that's what's one thing that's very important about the the, the literally me meme that I reference a lot on the show, you know, about this kind of pantheon of anti-hero or even psychopathic pop culture figures. The Joker is literally me. Tyler Durden is literally me. Patrick Bateman is literally me. And it can go on and on and on with those, you know, those, those, those kind of characters. And there's 
something I think very important about yeah the destruction of the family and the destruction of of masculinity through the the kind of humiliation of it with this with this uh, with with these cultural archetypes that that can just create yeah just just pathways for young men to get sucked into these things and then just you know just kind of perpetuate the cycle of just creating further and further arrested development and more and more I think grandiose unhealthy whether power fantasies or broader ideologies and then of course the uh, you know then there's like a follow-up side to that it's like well we have uh what do we do with all of these incels uh, the, the, this menace this scourge you know certainly we need you know we need we need both pop culture and media and government maybe even the deep state to fight this threat and you know that that's when you kind of move from the the, the dissolve to the coagulates this in alchemical terms as we sometimes do in the podcast form of a, a stage of the broader i think psyop of culture where after all this destruction you do have you do have something new built on top of that there's a there's a parallel there with the psychological bit of this where after enough trauma you dissociate into a power fantasy you know or some other kind of escapist fantasy which you're in a state of being you know indefinitely able to be manipulated and so i think i i yeah so i, I really think all of that's going on and with figures like you've mentioned and like we've talked about with jeff about the serial killer the the mass shooter all these other figures you kind of have a riding of the line between, I think, the destruction, the dissolve, and then the recreation coagulate stage of what's going on with, with synthetic culture in terms of, yes, there's a very, these figures are responding to the emptiness of modern mm-hmm. culture and to the lack of transcendent values. And they're accelerating that process by creating these death cults and indulging in these violent acts and ideologies and fetishization of psychopathy and often these really, I think, dangerous ideas or other bad, bad spiritual ideas. And then they're, they're hinting toward, they're, then they're hinting toward the future of what will be, what will be, I think, worshipped, what the, what fantasies will collectively be led to, to dissociate into after this destruction process is, is complete or at least accelerated. And so I, I think you get that with someone like David Fincher, who you know, we've covered quite a bit on on science. Mm-hmm. I know we did a full we did a full series on him, but you have all of this all of this serial killer stuff that has so much misdirection to it, where you you basically have you know it's something like like Seven or the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. You have basically uh, you have like Christian serial killers who are you know who are or, or Christian, <laughs> Nazi, or Christian Nazi serial killers who are like you know um, you know like in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo just murdering Jewish women or things like that. This, these like left wing like fever dreams about what's going on with the serial killer phenomenon that doesn't at all reflect the actual realities of, of these cases. And then when you look at what is being worshipped in its in its place, then you have something like I think Girl the Dragon Tattoo is a very important movie. The Elizabeth character, the protagonist, you know, the titular girl, you know, is basically worshipped as this kind of dark, avenging, feminine figure in the movie. And so you have hints towards that worship of darkness and all these other things with the cult of the serial killer, true crime, mass shooter. But then as soon as that stuff gets gets moved into the category of incel, which of course, like, you know, like, you know, a leper for society and an object of hate, then you get this kind of broadcasting of, okay, we're going, once we transfer that kind of darkness and psychopathy onto a figure that we can admire, like ones who can embody the dark avenging kind of liquidity of the feminine, then you have incest to, I think, what someone like Father Seraphim Rose might call the religion of the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, there's really no difference between the Elizabeth character and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and Jack Bauer from 24. They're the same person, you know, like yes, they're sir. willing, 
they're willing to torture whoever do whatever to get to do what they need to do. And you're actively encouraging them to do so because it's right and just. Right, right, right. And yeah, I think that that's, that, that's a great comparison because, you know, there's, you know, there's a sequence, you know, toward the end of that movie where, you know, she's kind of coded no longer just a private investigator, but she's basically a spy with the things mm-hmm. that she's able to do and the kinds of things she's doing. So like this, uh, it's a much more sophisticated version of the kind of, the kind of social justice uh, turned towards favoring and favoring the deep state, you know, like the, the really superficial version is, you know, like the woke CIA ad or whatever. And then I think something, then I think something that's much more insidious and like I said, layered and complex and sophisticated is something like that film where it's uh, where, 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 yeah, this, this character who will, who is, you know, soulless, will torture, will will do all of these things, will manipulate finance and and all of that is good because she's aligned with these things that we know we're trained to hate, being those things that are aligned with you know, toxic masculinity or whatever. And so yeah, you can transfer the kind of the kind of a neocon fever dream of uh, of 24 into this kind of new globalist consensus when you have when you have all of those when you have all of those pieces in place, and yeah, I think that it's, I'm remembering you know, Jeff's article that I had, that you have discussed on the show before with him, and that Brett said, you know, I, I had sent him, and you know, there where you know he's, you know, he, where he has that, you know, the really good line about, you know, about the mass shooter being a real rather than fictional consequence, quoting consequence of the same developments, and. Let's see. Yeah, the spiritual hollowness at the core of history's most powerful empire, a power granted by violence that is now mostly disavowed, outsourced to proxy wars and automated drone attacks. Yeah, so that's uh, so that's from Jeff. And I think that that what's really important to recognize there is the continuity between the that kind of disavowed violence you know, happening you know, through you know, through, you know, through the globalist empire and then the kind of the kind of psychological terrorism happening at home through uh, through these kind of cultural ops that that we're talking about i think these are all ultimately of a piece and pointing in the same very very dangerous political direction and 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 yeah that can go back to what you said could be like you know the the, the ben shapiro retort of oh what 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 are you talking about psychological terrorism traumatization you know what what are you some kind of you know some kind of Tumblr snowflake or whatever but then no like when you actually look at you know look at mk ultra look at all these other operations look at all look at what what some of the new spiritual trends that are being glorified in culture what they can actually do to a person what these things have done to the psyche no you can see that we're talking about very real violence very real evil very real tangible history historical examples of that and yeah the fact that you know, you have the overlap of the entertainment industry and hall you know the entertainment industry and intelligence agencies you have you know you have the history of the CIA and MK Ultra and all of that yeah i think that the death cults at the, at, you know, at the heart of the new you know the new global order that's emerging and its underlying spirituality is really revealed by yeah by, by that continuity between between 24 and girl the dragon tattoo that's a, that, that's a great point I think that there's something important that's happening here too to, that I can sort of bring back to the dirties as well is that there's sort of like a catch release recapture thing happening insofar as that like Jack Bauer, Elizabeth from girl with a dragon tattoo, right? She's a product of the state, right? Importantly, she goes through like a really rough foster care experience and is abused by her handlers in that system. And then she becomes this sort of, you know, basically murder machine that is then recaptured by the, by the state and put into good use. Same thing happens with Jack Bauer in a way. He's a CIA guy, he's a loose cannon and then brought back in. And then if you look at the Matt character in the dirties, 
he's exactly sort of what you might expect a certain version of somebody who's been reared on all of this culture to be. He's caught by it and then he's released out into his own and then is sort of like recaptured by his own filming of it and turning it into a media product itself. And there's something about that cycle that I think is really, really important because it's a cycle of reproduction. Yeah, it's a movie we're about to cover, The Suicide Squad, right? Exactly that is is being depicted involving the CIA, you know, capture, release, recapture. It's actually in in a whole like host of movies. And in, in general, like what's going on, like this collaboration, this documented collaboration between DOD and CIA, and I mean documented in now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films just over a couple of decades and if you count television shows, it's productions numbering into the into the thousands. It's about normalizing intelligence culture. And I mean, one of the concomitants of intelligence culture is what? Paranoia. To quote the Buffalo Springfield song, you know, paranoia strikes deep. I mean, you know, because Buffalo Springfield is probably a cultural psyop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that was the observation I, I wanted to make there. And the the atomization that's gone on, sort of a byproduct of the process of, of breaking on the family using these atomized, these sort of defanged, but, you know, atomized characters in for various sort of psi war <laughs> or political or political purposes. You know, there's this, everybody should listen to this Frank Zappa interview early nightly before he with this New Zealand documentarian where it describes in, in gory detail what television at television, MTV specifically, television in general, sitcoms, what they've been doing for a decade, really all the way back to, you know, at least the 60s, if not the, the 50s. And it is undermining the figure of the father. It's making the figure of the father into a ridiculous dope to the point where not only do people disrespect the father, they don't want to be fathers themselves. Because, you know, who would want to be a father? A father's just a Bundy, I meaning Al Bundy, you know, for married with children, but I mean Al Bundy and Homer Simpson and, and that area, mm-hmm. you know, all the way back to, to honeymooners and stuff. I mean, that's the figure of of the father. And, you know, that's what you if you want to destroy the family, I mean, you have to cut the head off. The father is the head, you know, of of the family. And so what Zappa says they're trying to do is like replace it with the squadron, which you see depicted in, in so many. I mean, that was what MTV was selling, right? Your, your new family is your squad, is your your crew, your gang. I mean, this is I, I see these younger generations now, and I mean the way that they've gotten you know disentangled or whatever. They they've basically lost their connection to family. That is, I I think it's just I think it's incredible actually. I don't think I think it's almost unprecedented the level of breakdown of the family. But they're replacing it with a squadron that doesn't replace the family, but it is controllable. You know, just like mm-hmm. gangs are controllable, right? And they're used in a prison. They use gangs, right? They want gang organization. They want squad organization. But families are are difficult, you know, to control. So yes, I see a lot of this, the the weird alienated outsider. I mean, that the the growth of that figure, you know, not beginning, but certainly highlighted by Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver, that's running in lockstep with, yes, a concerted effort to break down the family and create a new and to, to use the sexual revolution to herald in, you know, this sort of new new social style on um, this radical new social style and that so that thinking about the 70s too right there's a parallel with you guys are talking about the culture of death and and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, jeff and how these phenomena that we're talking about now right go hand in glove with drone attacks and the de- well i mean what was going on in the 60s and 70s is these the beginning of these deliberate trauma-based kind of attacks on the public psyche the exorcist last house on 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what is that following upon? The Vietnam War, or the Phoenix Program. And if you think it's a coincidence, well, I mean, Wes Craven says when he made Last House on the Left, he was trying to translate the trauma that the United States was inflicting on the Vietnamese population and then turn it down, turn it around and then use the media to inflict it. Now, whether you believe that or not, or, or, or what his ultimate purpose was, that's what, he, that's what he claimed, that he was using it as a traumagenic medium. He was using film that way. And we don't have time now, but I give a million examples of how it is self-consciously used as a medium to to transmit and you know this and if you got deep into the i don't know if you're watching guinea pig movies and that, that kind of stuff <laughs> i mean that's what they're trying to do like they're trying to mess you up they're trying to they're trying to shock you well yeah i think this is to me part of like what makes what i really really liked about the ending of the dirties you know so Matt sets up all these cameras before everybody gets to school so that they're GoPros so that, you know, and he gets the angles right and everything. He's rehearsed what he's going to say to the bullies because they sort of routinely, physically and emotionally abuse him. So he knows how to sort of like bait them into doing that in the right spot so he can get the right angle and kill them. And after he kills the first two bullies in like pretty horrific fashion he sees that owen is running away from him and he sprints after owen being like dude where are you going and then eventually finds owen in a dark room owen's locked in trying to run away from him and he's like what are you doing it's me it's me and then it just ends and i thought like ending it on it's just me and the sheer look of terror on owen's face and that, like, the absolute ambiguity of someone like Matt saying, it's me, was, I think, part of the real horror of the violence, is that it, it came from that place. Well, and it ended it without glorifying the violence, so I appreciated the way that, I mean, some people maybe didn't like the way it ended. I actually thought it was thematically on point, as as you've amply demonstrated. And I also just thought, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a tasteful way to end to end the movie. You know, if I could say something about the, I want, I did want to talk about Elephant, and yeah, please talking about the the deconstruction and and reconstruction that's going on on a number of of registers here, but the cultural level, right? So this this sort of cultural nihilism of the 90s that peaks with the Columbine massacre, and, and I would argue as part of a larger sweep of culture from the 60s, that starts to get, I, mean, I was watching it happen, that was getting deconstructed uh, in the 2000s. Now, as far as the school shooter phenomenon, Elephant is the key film in how this gets deconstructed. And I just, I, 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 without getting too narrative-based narrative here, I mean, I saw this movie... That's, this is when I was actually writing this this manuscript where I was sort of sorting through my own experience of my own odyssey through cultural nihilism in the 90s and growing up in Colorado. And, and the movie really pissed me off because not only what it was, but what it was trying to be. So Gus Van Zandt did this trilogy of movies in this era. The first one was called Jerry with a G. Oh, it's Casey Affleck and Matt Damon wandering around the White Sands in 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 Utah for like I mean it's complete gar I mean the movie is total garbage. It's the most pretentious piece of crap that you've ever heard of and this is the follow up <laughs> to it and it's in the same 
yeah, the same overall sort of aesthetic conception is driving this. And then this third one, which we'll talk about a little bit in just a second, but The Last Days, which is his Kurt Cobain movie, which is, I couldn't even watch that. I saw chunks of it. It was just, you already know it if you've seen the first two. It was so infuriating. But what he was doing with Elephant is he explained clearly, and I, I won't explain the whole movie. If people have seen it, they'll know what I'm talking about. But he, so what he said that he was, what he said that he was trying to do is he was trying not only to present the events, in this case, a school shooting like Columbine from multiple fragmented perspectives, like Rashomon, he deliberately referenced Rashomon, which is also on the shelf, I think, of Matt in, in the dirties. But he yeah. wanted to remove from this, because in Rashomon, it's about cause and effect. So there's a reason that it's, I mean, you can call it a postmodern movie or whatever. In some ways, it's not a postmodern movie, Rashomon. But he was going the next phase, I, and he deliberately said, I wanted to remove all cause and effect, making me think of a Smashing Pumpkins, like wanted to mutilate the meaning so it's easy mm -hmm. to deny. Well, that's what seemed what was going on to me is they were muted. The, the cultural managers were mutilating the meaning of this event, it seemed to me. So they could tell any any story that they that they wanted about it. It was mostly these boomers and people that didn't that, that thought that you know basically to, like John Lennon you know thought called the Beatle compared the Beatles to Jesus being on Earth. Well, they thought the boomers you know thought that basically Jesus was on Earth during during their cultural revolution. And I just looked at it from that angle. But yeah, it was so infuriating that he was simply trying to remove all meaning. You know, out of the event. Now, that movie Elephant is referenced in the Dirties through the shirt that Matt wears. It's a it's a yellow mm -hmm. shirt with this bold design, which I think I looked it up at the time. I think it was from like some skateboard company, but which this guy John Robinson, this I think he was a skateboarder himself, wears, and it's very striking. He's very striking looking, very angelic looking. If you remember John Robinson from from mm -hmm. Elephant, so, so some of the cinematography. So Van Zen is an able like filmmaker. Um, he was overrated. I mean, he got his indie creds through Drugstore Cowboy mm -hmm. and My Own Private Idaho, which I won't say they're overrated now because you don't hear much about them. But in their day, they were vastly overrated, even though they're good movies. And then he's made a lot of uneven films. In this phase, though, it was it just seemed like it was part of this psyop to reconfigure the 90s. Now, with Last Days, that's that movie is this guy who's basically supposed to be Kurt Cobain, like wandering around for 80 minutes and then shooting himself. And but but I, I was I was rereading the synopsis and and, and I think my suspicions are are justified that I feel like this also is part of solidifying that that narrative about Cobain and, and his suicide, because there's there's a detail, the idea that he was walking around and also he ducks a private investigator. That's key because you'll find out later who is the private investigator, Tom Grant, watched the movie Soaked in Bleach. The idea is, oh yeah, he was there, just like the official narrative. And I guess Tom Grant didn't see him. No, he wasn't there right mm -hmm. at the time. But this movie was reinforcing false details of the public narrative that are used to, you know, to use to sell the, the, the narrative that he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that seemed to me very suspicious. Now these guys, Matt and, and Owen, they did a show called the Nirvana band show. Yeah. Um, Nirvana, the band, the show. Yeah. And, and they get, and they get into, I guess I didn't watch it, but they, they get into these conspiracy theories about, I just want to say this to your listeners, if they're, if they're interested in this, look at Alan Wrench is probably the, Alan Wrench confessed to this. You can look at the YouTube video. He's the Alan that's mentioned by, oh, the guy in the Curtin Courtney documentary. Oh, right. Hope, yeah. Yeah. By the guy named by Hoke, who then he's dead on railroad tracks a couple mm -hmm. weeks after. So Alan Wrench is, is the probable killer I would speculate they can look into that but there's several other references right to to cobain also in in the dirties
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it really seemed like the dirties is really catching a slew of, you know, I sort of said this before, 90s and early 2000s signifiers and important moments right before their shelf life expires in a certain way. Like they don't create, pop culture doesn't structure identity in the same way that it used to, I don't think. Like fandom has really changed. It's become more like a religion and less like a social experience. Um, and advertisers are very straightforward about doing that. People can go back to my interview with Monia Ali, who does fandom studies, runs a great substack on that and reads the material advertisers write for themselves to each other about what they're trying to do. And it is to basically create a religion around brands. That is a very different experience than I would say the self-selecting combinatory experience of, I would say, like assimilating canonical cultural artifacts and then turning that into your personality. And the dirties, I think, is sort of the last run of that type of self-creation. And now it almost feels like there is the tabula rasaization of the self through the algorithm and what it feeds you. And that is a totally different experience and register, I think. And one that really frustrates what was left of a sort of idea of lineage or canon that even existed in the pop cultural world. And yet Columbine, right, has been distilled out of it and then yes. assimilated, you know, to the psyche. And that's that's what's very interesting. And I think, yeah, people like Gus Van Zant were instrumental in in making that possible. They were, you know, cultural alchemists. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering if you guys have any closing thoughts on the dirties and like what you made of it in general as a film. Yeah, so like I've said, I think it's a I think it's a very good film and worth watching and uh, responsibly handles some subject matter that has a lot of pitfalls around it that you could have gone in some very dark and irresponsible directions and it manages to manages to be troubling in a, in, in possibly a, a healthy way. And I guess with the ending and some of these uh, these final sequences of the film that we've been talking about, yeah, the scene. Um, the scene with Matt and and his mother is just so striking and heartbreaking. Just her lack of awareness about of what's about to happen and his kind of final attempt to maybe ground himself by even asking, in reality, by asking like, is is he insane or what? And she's explaining, you know, what she though he's he has wacky ideas, says wacky things, but he's not insane. And insanity is the different is the inability to tell the difference between your thoughts and reality. And I think that the real, you know, just one of the real tragedies here is just how much of, of Matt's thoughts are just lost in this world of pop culture that he's dissociated, that he's dissociated into, and, and he can't tell the difference between those fantasies and reality. And what that, that also makes me think of is the, the great scene earlier when he and Owen have this kind of falling out where, where Owen just tells him you know, that, <laughs> that basically yells at him for being so self-destructive and is refusing to participate in that and says, that you do this to yourself, you know, he tells Matt, it's very, very powerful uh, line and it's very well delivered. And it's like, yes, that's true. And I love to see that, that kind of repudiation of just the pathological nature of this kind of obsessive, this obsessive immersion to pop culture. But at the same time, 
there's another level when it's not Matt, that's not Matt's fault. And I really, you know, you really feel for the character that, you know, in a way this has been done to him. Like there is the level of personal responsibility, of course, and consent to this evil superculture that I think a lot of us, you know, have, especially those of us who have been really deep into it need, need to deal with and work through the consent and complicity to, to, you know, to these, uh, to these very malign ideas. But then on, you know, on the other hand, it's, you know, it's, it isn't Matt's fault that all of these things that he escaped into have all these messages that he's imbibed to such a deep degree that so much of the, our culture that's synthetic, that is, is, is purposefully, you know, planting these ideas. And again, you can, we can go through just the history of cultural engineering, or just genuinely looking at the messages of the films themselves, you know, the, the secrets of Hollywood are under the silver lake to quote a relevant line from another very important movie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's so in a certain way, the, 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 the dissociation, they're getting lost in these feedback loops. This is something that Matt is doing to himself, but also something that's been done to him. And so that with that last line, what are you doing? It's me, which is, I think, the only line in the film that was strictly scripted. Everything else was kind of, to some degree, some degree improvised. It is really heartbreaking because you know, Matt, I think you know, he's so lost in this that even having just to just kill two people, it wouldn't be obvious to him why his friend is afraid of him because he feels like he's the same person that he's always been just because he's just been totally lost to the ambiguity. So I, I think it's very good that I think these kind of conversations about the the malevolent synthetic nature of culture are breaking out of the, the stupid stigma of conspiracy theory and being given serious attention because, you know, I don't think we have a, we have a choice at this point, but to confront this, to confront the fact that this kind of manipulation on a cultural scale, it's on the books. And, and this is the kind of thing that, that it's doing to people. Absolutely. Brett, how about you? Well, I mean, I think I said about everything as far as my evaluation of the movie that I can say, but there's one more comment I wanted to make about how several scenes in this movie reinforce this thing I call the immunity of the artist, which is, you know, the amount of license basically society gives to people making art to the point of overlooking open criminal behavior. So, for example, when when uh, Owen's concerned that people might find it suspicious that they're measuring lockers, Matt shouts out supposedly jokingly that, oh, we're planning a school shooting. You know, just say it out loud, you know, revelation of the method. So it, it works. And Matt reassures Owen that his mom will think nothing of the pictures of their perspective victim because they're making a movie. If you're making a movie, you can you can do anything. You're setting up the cameras and the other scene. Right. So I, I'm, it made me think of like Argo. Right. Which is it, it? they're they're using the immunity of the artist. there, these intelligence agents as a cover for for intelligence work. And of course, remember that Ben Affleck, who stars in, in Argo and, and is a CIA asset, along with his former wife, Jennifer Garner, has said in a much retweeted quote that hmm, maybe maybe there's a lot of people in the CIA in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of this film's saving graces is that it's Canadian, which is something that Matt Johnson talked about. He was like, well, I didn't know if this film would be successful because it was sort of this indie and because it's Canadian. And so it had it had sort of had those marks against it. You know, I think I'm thinking about both of the things that you guys have said sort of throughout this. And I think like what... What's interesting to me is that there's this interview with Matt Johnson, which I think with like, it's like a two minute interview, maybe with Vanity Fair, if we're on the movie comes out and he says, he says this, and it, like, which shows me like how he's smarter than he thinks he is because he says, you know, I wanted to make a movie where I asked the question, what if these school shooters had our childhood? And I was like, buddy, they did. <laughs> like that's, 
that's it, man. Like you're right, but you don't know how right you are. Um, and I think that that's sort of like why Matt and Owen use their own names through it. And I think what's really, really important is that a good double feature would be this and Superbad, which is referenced in the closing credits of this movie, because it is two very different looks, looks at teen male friendship and from sort of the same era. And I would say that like, whatever Superbad's faults or whatever, at least has a level of tenderness to it that is completely absent from Matt's life. And to me, that is like one of the most important mo like elements of the dirties that is not overplayed, especially the fact that at no point does he come into physical contact with his own mother at all during that situation. Right. There is no real rapport between him and Owen on a deeper emotional level. And it is one of those friendships you can see that one of them is going to grow out of. And whenever that happens, there's always the one person who doesn't expect it. And to me, just on a not psyop, strictly psychological level, as a person in society, I think that to me was the thing that really broke my heart about the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, yeah, it's it's a very moving portrait of uh, of these two characters, and I think that uh, the other the, the real the real tragedy thing is just uh, the real tragic thing here is when those uh, those psyops and those just basic psychological aspects of, of just of, of being human when they collide, they collide in very dark ways. And it'd be interesting to maybe at some point look at their follow up film that deals with uh, that that deals with you know, Moon Landing, Kubrick, and all that all that. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, absolutely. But the, but the ways these basic human tragedies or just these basic tender aspects of of adolescence of high school and all these things that they collide with just the pure what i would say satanic evil of cultural engineering i think is yeah yeah i, I think that's 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 truly heartbreaking truly evil and truly tragic well yeah it, it's a it's a shadow of how <laughs> There used to be some at least token compassion shown, at least for the sake of, you know, social preservation. Like we got to figure out, we got to have some empathy for people doing this. I mean, that is just complete. I mean, we really live in a callous society and the left has to bear the, the brunt of that because they go around selling that they're, you know, that that they're these just that, that want to save us all from mean-spirited rednecks or something. And it's a giant hypocritical lie. The left's control of of the culture has made it hard and mean and and ugly and one of those school shooter films a bang bang you're dead it's not a very good film with it's with ben Trapp, and it was actually an attempt to there's also a movie with united states of leland with early ryan gosling oh my god wow yeah Ta yeah. Talk about a throwback. Yeah, that's sort of like, a, you know, that meme where it's just like, mom, can we have whatever? And it's like, we have whatever at home. It's sort of like, mom, can we have American beauty? And it's like, no, we have American beauty at home. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can echo your 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 sentiments. I mean, right. But in this movie, right, it's only a shadow of that. It's it's a subtext. It's it's very it's there, but it's it's the movie itself is kind of callous in that way because, uh, well, not quite as much as Matt, right? Because it's showing some efforts at 
at thawing and and you know him but yeah it's like that's kind of what's happened to our culture we don't have i mean talking about i remember telling somebody like i didn't know what an incel was so i was describing it to me i was like well that's very sad and i was trying and they got really angry at me just for me. And i'm like i don't even know who yeah. these people are i mean like it just sounds kind of sad it's a sad circumstance yeah and I, I just think i mean i think that's sort of like that's why it's so important owen basically finds a girl even if like matt sort of helps him do that right like matt's just kind of doing a bit he doesn't think it's actually going to go somewhere he's just sort of like interested in like the instigation of it and like forwarding the plot i guess of whatever he's doing but my wife was asking about this and she was sort of like how come like you know she's like it's great when sort of like men sort of change around their 30s and start like taking more responsibility for themselves or whatever you know finally like really growing up or, or what have you and she was like, usually it's about a woman. Like, what's up with that? And I was just like, well, I think that there's something instinctual in you as a man that knows that the older you get, like the longer you go alone, the weirder you get. And the weirder you get, the longer you go alone. Now, like, whatever doesn't kill you only makes you weirder. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think we'll... We'll end it on that with a little bit of sympathy for the incel, which I think we should have because it's a very sad circumstance. I want to thank you both for taking time out of your day to talk to me about this strange little Canadian indie. And people who want to check out uh, the PSYOP Cinema can go hop into our show notes. You'll find the link there. Great. Thanks so much, Emmett. This has been a really fun conversation. And this, this movie is so relevant to a lot of our recent analysis. So I'm very glad you brought it to our attention. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, gentlemen. Catch you later. And stay safe out there.